0: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Catherine Lester, lecturer in film and television in the Department of Film and Creative Writing at the University of Birmingham, and the author of Horror Films for Children, Fear and Pleasure in American Cinema. The book was published by Bloomsbury in 2022. Cat, welcome. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, I'm pretty good. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much for inviting me on the podcast as well. And I believe which might be the f- the first person to come on the podcast.
0: Well, or at least with to record. Me hosting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see how the train wreck goes. Um, but as, as we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and training?
1: Sure. Um, Let's see, my background, um, I primarily, to begin with, I did my undergraduate studies in English literature and film. But um, as I got further along in that degree, I realised that I was veering a lot more towards the film studies side. But the English side was still really in- instrumental. I did a lot of studies in children's literature. And I ended up kind of taking the stuff from children's literature and the I did a class on horror. As well on the film study side and kind of realized there was this fascinating overlap between the two of them that hadn't really been explored very much um if at all in academia um and things really kind of spiraled from there uh so it went from an, an undergraduate essay on children's horror to a master's thesis on children's horror to a phd on guess what children's horror. And um, now I have a book. So, yeah, I mean,
0: in reading your your study, I think you make it quite clear that in some ways we think of children's horror as antithetical, right? Horror films are for adults. They're scary. They have monsters. They have violence. They have gore. That can't possibly be appropriate for children. And I think you kind of lay out a pretty strong case for, in fact, um, not only horror in children's culture, but horror media in particular produced with children in mind. Um, can you tell us a little bit about writing the book what was the process like converting your your PhD thesis into a a proper
1: monograph um I like to say that it was a a a bit of a horrific experience in itself (laughs) um and I, I say that kind of in jest but also kind of seriously um I wanted to make the book and the thesis slightly different from each other I guess because that's partly what publishers like um if they're going to publish a thesis they want it to be at least a a bit different um so I made some structural changes I decided to put in some new case studies which ended up being quite difficult um especially if you change something structurally it's like taking out like a trying to take out a piece of Jenga and hoping that the whole (laughs) thing doesn't topple down, right? right. But I realized as I was doing that, even though I hated doing it, I realized as I was doing it that a slightly different kind of perspective on children's horror was was kind of coming out and a different sort of um, framing to the book was coming out. And that's where the idea of the horrific child came from. Um, which I talk about in the book and which I can talk about in a bit more detail in a minute, if you like. Um, The the thesis was kind of I went into the Ph.D. going, I'm going to say everything there is to say about children's horror, which I think a lot of Ph.D. students think they're going to do when they start a thesis. And the thesis was kind of three different. Loosely connected. Um, chapters on different thematic areas of children's horror but it wasn't really until I was writing the book that I realized um, what united all of my case studies or at least the way I was talking about the case studies was this idea that what makes children's horror really interesting and different from adult horror as I call it is the way that it represents children in particular we, we're so used to seeing children in horror, as you said, they're kind of thought of as antithetical, but when we do see children in horror, which is a lot, they tend to be evil kids, right? The creepy kid. Mm. And I thought it was so interesting that children's horror was allowing children to be represented in ways that were so much more complex. They were sometimes kind of horrific or violent or unruly, but they weren't necessarily always demonized for that they could be like that but also be a main character but they also had vulnerabilities and their own fears that they were working through Um, so it was that idea of a specific type of child that was being constructed in the texts that I found really interesting and became Mm -hmm. this kind of through line throughout the book that hadn't really been there in the PhD thesis
0: Excellent. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, So like, what would be an example to you of how children were represented in horror media for adults and um, how that was talked about by horror scholars prior to the work you're doing here?
1: I think there are two different ways, typically, that children tend to be represented in horror for adults. And that is the kind of evil villains, like I just mentioned, Um, the characters like Damien Thorne from The Omen, or a more recent example could be like orphan even though kind of spoiler alert she's not really a child but the whole kind of setup for that film right is that she's an evil child um but then on the flip side of that you have the children who are really only there to be a victim to be saved by an adult protagonist um someone like the kid in poltergeist maybe who doesn't really get to do anything in that movie except just kind of shout mummy from like some void (laughs) or something and it's it's really the main character there the protagonist the driving force is an adult character who has to save the child um and Robin Wood's writing on 70s American horror films was really instrumental to my thinking about this because he basically does point that out about children in horror that they have to be either destroyed or saved, although, or rather, I think the specific way he puts it is they have to be annihilated or assimilated. Mm. Um, And he's talking about kind of others in horror in general, but children are one of those others for him. And so it was from that idea of children often being put into these binary categories where they either are a victim to be saved or a demon to be destroyed, that I that I realized that children's horror was doing something quite different. And and how is that
0: different from how horror has traditionally operated within children's literature and culture more broadly? I'm I'm thinking about Disney films, which you talked briefly about, the, the early animated uh features of Walt Disney.
1: Well, I think a lot of those early animated feature films are really important. Um what's the term? What am I what's the word I'm looking for? Like watershed moments if you will um, in the history of children's horror because they were these huge mainstream films which might not necessarily have been intended for children specifically we think of them that way now but Walt Disney never really thought of his his films as children's films at the time but they were these these huge mainstream films lots of children watched them and found them really really frightening Um, and Snow White in particular had almost a kind of contentious reputation for that. In the UK, it was like given a rating that meant only adults could see it because it was thought to be so frightening. Um, Part of the reason I think that those are different to what we see now is again, that they weren't necessarily made specifically to be for a child audience. Um, Disney thought of himself as making films for everybody. Mm. There's then a major shift, as I argue in um, the first chapter of the book, there's quite a big shift after the abolition of the production code in the late 60s and the introduction of a rating system instead, which I argue, um, and which someone called Philippa Antunes, who also writes on this topic, she argues this as well, that the introduction of a rating system meant that all while horror before under the production code could technically be for everybody, you could now have horror films that were given a rating that might say, this is only for adults. And you might have ratings that would say, this is now primarily maybe for children and families. So for example, you know, the GPGs and then kind of R and above, which would Mm. signify children are not allowed.
0: Yeah, I, I, along those lines, you you gesture towards your earlier work where you argue about um, or, or make the case about the inherent impossibility of children's horror films. And um, I hear echoes there of Jacqueline Rose. Um, I'm curious if you could explain what you mean by this impossibility.
1: Um, I almost regret using the word impossibility in that work, because essentially what I'm arguing is that uh, they're not impossible. Right. But it's kind of that. But- um, I guess that's kind of one of the pitfalls of academia is you use these <laughs> sexy words and, and, and titles. Um, but no, it's a good point. Cause I do say that the idea of children's horror sounds like an impossibility because um, in the sort of generic sense, how do you make a horror film that is still scary enough that it can be considered horror without being kind of too scary or too horrific that it stops being for children and what I try to argue in that article is that actually there are all these children's horror films like Paranorman is one of the ones I talk about mm-hmm. in that article and then in the book which are taking the, typic, the typical tropes and generic identifiers and effective pleasures that we expect from horror and it's just modifying them tempering them or adapting them um, to meet the expectations that we have of children's films. And of course, children will have very different ideas of what's scary than adults.
0: So let's let's continue that. Um, you, you, You mentioned already, and one of the big concepts you're developing in your books, this idea of the horrific child. Can you tell us more about that?
1: The horrific child is something that emerged out of my discussion of gremlins really um I was speaking about gremlins in the book as this great metaphor for what children's horror is or that impossibility that it faces um one of those societal fears about children and horror is that if a child is exposed to something horrific like a horror movie they'll almost immediately become like depraved or want to kill other people or just mimic the violence that they see on screen, a little bit like um, how the gremlins in Gremlins all of a sudden overnight go from these cute sweet little things to becoming these depraved um, monsters. But I really was taken by the idea that we could also see the gremlins creatures themselves as figures of pleasure for a child audience they do all these things that maybe like we would want to do but we know that they're not socially acceptable like breaking into a bar and drinking directly from the tap um, you know breaking into a movie theater and messing the whole place up they go and watch Snow White as it happens that we were talking about just before and a lot of even worse things, including kind of murdering old ladies who are really, really mean to them. And so I was thinking about how a film like Gremlins, but other children's horror films as well, they are inviting an audience to partake in the pleasures that we see on screen. And that ple- those pleasures include fear, but it, it can also include um, disgust and fun and catharsis and all these other things. So when I use the term horrific child in the book, sometimes I'm referring to a character in the film, but sometimes I'm thinking about it as a mode of address, like um, the kind of model reader concept that Umberto Eco talks about. Um, that it's these films are specifically constructing an ideal viewer who's constructed as like a childlike an actual child or an adult who's invited to occupy the perspective of a child and to enjoy all of these unruly um, pleasures that are on screen.
0: I I think this is one of the important points you're developing early in the book, right, is this notion that we have to protect children from horror media because it's going to scare them, it's going to give them nightmares, um, it's going to corrupt them, this kind of traditional moral panics we see around uh, children and media and popular culture more broadly. Can you talk more about pleasure? I mean, what is what is the imagined pleasure being offered by these for children's uh, children viewers, child viewers? And um, you know, why are we seeing so much of it lately? It seems that your book really shows how children's horror media has really um, ex- you know, exploded in the last 30, 40 years or so, right? It's it's, it's mm. perhaps more vibrant now than ever.
1: One of one of the interesting things that I found when I was digging into some of those there there are some empirical studies on children's responses to horror um in the fields of kind of psychology for example you can find quite a lot of studies on the effects of horror or violent media on children and something I found interesting about them is a lot of the time they seem like they are looking for negative effects and not really thinking about the fact that positive effects might come out of children engaging with horror and there are some studies where they even seem quite surprised that that children say this scared me but I liked it they don't they and I don't know maybe I'm being a bit harsh but it almost seems like a lot of those studies are written by people who don't really like horror films and so don't really understand that pleasure can be a really important part of the horror genre for people of all ages really um, it's often compared to like going on a roller coaster because you know you're going to be really scared, but you also know that you're safe at the same time. Um, this is also something spoken about by Noel Carroll as the paradox of horror, right? Why do we like something that makes us feel, um, quote unquote, negative emotions? But that could be because we want to be able to experience emotions um, that are a part of the human experience without actually having to put ourselves into dangerous or sad situations. Like, why do we like melodrama? Right? It makes us cry and it makes us feel awful, but that 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 in itself is a kind of catharsis in a way. And I think this the same logic applies to children, and children especially, like they want to have fun, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Horror is really really fun. Um, Yeah, and I think that uh, children should be able to access the kind of fun that horror can offer just in the same way that adults can access that fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems to point to how our refusal to acknowledge children's horror media is... um... Correlates to our perception that the the child spectator is somehow naive or unsophisticated, right? Um, and you point to some interesting work by Maria Tatar and William uh, Paul about this kind of uh, desire to control children through our perceptions of uh, violence or horror, right? Um, and you know this adult child binary is so crucial here. Um, and your work as part of a larger movement, I feel like, to dignify the child, right, and to engage in that kind of complexity as a spectator. Would, would you agree? Is that how you you see this kind of move? Because you, you point to other scholars um, of your generation as well as yourself in kind of rethinking these boundaries and these uh, imperatives.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think um that's one of the things I really wanted to come across in the book. And I'm glad it sounds like it, it does, is to just both we, we need to respect children's horror as a genre and respect children themselves and respect the fact that they can have quite complex responses um, to media. And there is, as you just said, there is a wider kind of interest in studying children's horror coming out of the academy at the moment, but there are also really important scholars like David Buckingham or like Martin Barker, who unfortunately, as we're recording, just passed away the other day, who did really important work in like the 80s and 90s of acknowledging that media violence is not inherently harmful, Mm. and especially not inherently harmful to children. And that the effects that violence, viewing violence is going to have can, can depend on a whole range of complex things, including children themselves. And I think we have a tendency like socially, culturally to imagine children as this like big homogenous group that all responds to something in the exact same way. Even though children, like if you take a child who's like three and a child who's 13, they're gonna be completely different and have completely different tastes and maturity and tolerance for fear and all other kinds of um, emotions. So
0: in the first chapter, you offer us this historical overview and you go back to Frankenstein. And I was thinking about Frankenstein, which I, I taught last year. And I think the scene that really shocks, you know, my students is, you know, he kills a kid. Um, and, and you also mentioned that this scene has often been excised as well. But why does Frankenstein for you kind of signify this um, originary point, right? This This moment that kind of is is uh, tantamount to the development of children's horror.
1: Partly, I think that's because Frankenstein was also a really important film in the development of horror generally, right? Um, other people have spoken about this much better than I, uh, people like Kendall Phillips, for example, about how the label horror didn't even really exist until... 19, around 1931 when Frankenstein and Dracula were both released in the same year. Um, before then you did have kind of scary films but people just didn't call them horror films. So that's a part of it but I think also just the fact that um, Frankenstein does have that iconic scene where the monster kills a child That's and the fact that it was widely censored seemed just like a really good example of the that concern for children um, when it comes to the horror genre, both children in the audience who might be upset by that scene, but also concern for the child character in the scene who's who's being killed. Um, but the monster himself, we can also read as a childish character. Um, and so again, it's that, that idea that we have s- such trouble, socially of acknowledging that children can be monsters but that's not necessarily a bad thing in itself right so it just seems like a really important film not just to the horror genre generally but in the way that it represents these different facets of of childhood in the horror genre yeah, and it becomes such a, a
0: central text for children's culture, I think. I mean, my my first exposure to Frankenstein's Monster, right, the Boris Karlo iteration was that crossover film with Abbott and Costello, which is, you know, it's, it's a comedy. It's fun. It's it's lighthearted, right? It kind of divorces Frankenstein from any sense of, you know, um, the romantic hero he is or Frankenstein's Monster is in Shelley's novel or the the, the horror figure he is in The Whale. No- film right but it has a fascinating cultural afterlife that is very much sees children as a part of it right um
1: exactly and and frankenstein or frankenstein's monster i should say <laughs> um shows yeah. up a lot in texts for children um so so do figures like dracula of course and the wolfman but frankenstein's monster is especially interesting i think because of that idea that he is basically a child um that makes him both appealing to children boris karloff said that he had loads of child fans who would write to him um and that makes him a useful figure to uh, to adapt for for children's stories right he's he's unwanted by his parent figure dr frankenstein and has to be kind of socialized and there are a lot of children's horror films that do exactly that um i don't really talk about it in the uh, in detail in the book but there's an alvin and the chipmunks movie where they meet frankenstein's monster and they like (laughs) have to teach him how to like be a good child like he doesn't have any manners and he doesn't know that you shouldn't touch a hot dish straight after it comes out the oven and just basic stuff like that
0: (laughs) yeah i mean it's fascinating to think about how these um figures from horror or these horror tropes get employed for didactic purposes within children's culture right um and and the fairy tale kind of lays the groundwork for this right um you frankenstein of course is a pre-code film um can you talk a bit about how industrial developments such as the production code have shaped the the development of children's horror
1: of course and so i think i did touch upon this a bit before the way that the the ending of the production code opened up space for horror films to be more directly targeted at audiences of different ages um although I could talk a bit about the production code era itself as well um in the first chapter of the book uh, one of one of the peer review comments that I got was that I don't really talk enough about that kind of code era um, time in in the book. I do kind of originally I did kind of gloss over it as just like oh this was interesting but it's not really the focus of of what I'm doing here and then I realized as I dug into it there was actually more interesting stuff to say for example about the matinees the the kids matinees that would occur during the 50s and 60s um, Kevin heffernan talks about this a lot more in in his own book on horror during that era but there even though in theory the production code meant that all films were suitable for everybody including horror films but there were still ways that children were being directly targeted um, through these matinees and they would often show slightly older horror films such as Frankenstein films that maybe were seen as like a bit corny or outdated for adult audiences but which could just be shown to children who had never seen them before so they'd often show um, alongside horror they'd also show like sci-fi films from that era and like Creature from the Black Lagoon and that kind of stuff so we think that's an interesting thing to acknowledge about the way that children were being directly targeted at that time although what i argue in the book is that those are still not necessarily children's horror films because in their the way they were produced they weren't necessarily thought of as being for children um maybe children were envisioned as a part of the audience but they weren't really children's films in the way that um some of the later films that i talk about can be considered children's films I think
0: that's really evocative of the challenge of studying children's cinema, right? There's the the Ian Wojcik-Andrews argument that, you know, um, anything a child consumes can be seen as children's cinema, which really means children's cinema is not really a useful Mm. heuristic, right? Because, you know, there are children who are watching incredibly violent, uh, incredibly um, adult-oriented media, right? So, what's the moment where we start to see a concerted shift industrially towards the child audience being centered and being the target for this horror media
1: it's pretty much the 1980s um if not exactly 1980 itself that's when the film the watcher in the woods was released which is a disney film that that seems to be forgotten by most people except for like ultra horror and Disney nerds um, like me. Um, and The Watcher in the Woods was kind of Disney's attempt to to try to catch a kind of teen audience because they were, by that point, Walt Disney had had died and Disney was supposedly falling out of favor with mainstream audiences a bit. And they were like, okay, we need something edgy. And they tried to do The Watcher in the Woods. Um, it was a huge flop, but it's, is an important early children's horror film but then the next major shift really happens with the introduction of the pg-13 rating um which of course happened partly because of gremlins gremlins was pg because pg-13 didn't exist yet and then supposedly traumatized loads of children and caused lots of parents complaints and so the pg-13 rating was invented specifically to to cater to kids in between like basically in between child and teenager right the tween category who had that kind of thirst for for horror that was a little bit more edgy than what they were seeing in more conventional children's films but yet weren't allowed enough to go and see the r-rated got your happy price price line
0: yeah and and two films you identify as as crucial to this as gremlins as you mentioned but also ghostbusters um what are they doing like what are those films doing in your mind and and, you know where do we see resonances or influences coming off of them or from them
1: interesting um well gremlins i see is really important um because of the way that it represents its childlike characters, by which I mean the mogwai and gremlin creatures, who I see as kind of symbolic children and as representing that, that binary of childhood, the good sweet child and the monstrous child um, on the flip side. Um, and so I see that as a stepping stone towards then breaking down that that binary in um, later children's horror films. Ghostbusters is an interesting one. I don't really talk about it in the book, partly because, well, because it doesn't represent children really. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a film that lots of children have grown up watching and loving. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really thought as much about that film as maybe I should have, because I I almost no, I, I because mean, I maybe didn't... I feel like <laughs> Ghostbusters gets enough airtime as it is, you know?
0: <laughs> it, it, it does get enough airtime, I, yeah. I, I agree. And um...
1: but it, I guess it, um, it is that kind of combination of horror and comedy that when done right, can appeal to people all across the age spectrum and can really introduce young audiences to ideas and themes that that they might then encounter in slightly more scary um, and kind of R-rated horror films.
0: I mean, I think that's the perfect answer, right? Like these are genre hybrids. I mean, uh, we rarely see, even for adult media, this kind of pure horror, right? It's often horror comedy or, um, you know, this kind of, um, I believe it's, is it slapter or something, right? The kind of slasher laughter. Um, and for children, that seems to work particularly well, right? Um, along those lines, Frankenweenie, right? Both the the short that Tim Burton did in the eighties and then the more fleshed out feature length adaptation. Why do you think this is an important film in the, in the canon of children's horror or films, um, I guess, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, earlier you asked me why start at Frankenstein. And part of that was because then I could call the chapter from Frankenstein to Frankenweenie, right? (laughs) Right. There's there's a nice um, kind of cyclic um, sound to that. Um, And as a pair, and I'm talking about the 2012 Frankenweenie, the feature-length version. um, As a pair, they make a really interesting comparison of how the way film, the way horror films address children, has has shifted. Um, Frank and Weenie meets the conventions of children's cinema, um, or at least the conventions that that we have today. The idea of happy endings and um, a child protagonist who learns a lesson by the end of the narrative, etc. The but the original Frank and Weenie, the short from 1984, is also kind of an interesting landmark Um, it it came out in 1984 so that is the same year as Gremlins and Ghostbusters so it's clearly an important year aside from the fact that the PG-13 rating then came out of that Um, and the 1984 Frankenweenie I believe was meant to be shown in front of a reissue of Pinocchio that it was I can't remember the exact facts it's all in the book Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it was it was either withdrawn before it was even shown or shortly after it started being shown because it was thought to be too scary, which is kind of strange when you consider it was supposed to go in front of Pinocchio, one of the most legendarily frightening uh, Disney films ever made. So I think that's interesting as well. And the fact that then Disney, because it was Disney who produced the original short and then the... The feature film, we can also use those two films as an example of how Disney's own perception of horror changed, that they went from, we can't show this because it's too scary, to let's let Tim Burton make an even longer version of this film.
0: Right, and, and you you also um, gesture towards this auteur aspect, right? Like that, that sometimes the children's horror film has been a space where... You know the the visionary artist, the great director. You know the the uh, stylist who has a a defined aesthetic, has really kind of gone in and um, created something original, right? Uh, Burton comes to mind. Henry Selick. Um, do you want to talk a little bit? Joe about Dante that? is another. Yeah, word. yeah, great. Yeah, uh, and that was Gremlins, correct?
1: Um, yeah gremlins and then he he made the whole which i talk about in the last chapter of the book but also stuff like small soldiers and explorers like other genre films for children as well yeah yeah um yeah i didn't even though i talk about frank and weenie in the book i didn't want to talk too much about tim burton partly because of because of my own like (laughs) being a bit bored of Tim Burton, especially in recent years. Um, And again, feeling like Tim Burton gets enough discussion as it is. I didn't need to add too much to it. Um, But there is clearly certain, there are certain names that, that return to children's horror again. And Burton is one who seems to have been especially influential on the aesthetic and even... Thematic um, direction of children's horror, especially and and Henry Selick, likewise. I mean, sometimes people think that Nightmare Before Christmas is directed by Tim Burton, right? But it's not. It's Henry Selick. So they kind of almost come as a pair. Um, so beginning with, I guess, Nightmare Before Christmas, which was obviously stop motion, that then influenced something like Coraline or even Corpse Bride, which I think was slightly earlier. And after Coraline, you have, which was produced by the Laker studio, you then have something like Paranorman. And so there does seem to be this like lineage that began with Burton and Selleck making Nightmare Before Christmas, which has really influenced this whole strand of children's horror that uses stop motion animation in really stylistically unique and distinctive ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really realized it until your book, but there's this convergence between the rise of children's horror and really the resurgence and in interest in, in animation, both stop motion, 2D, 3D. Um, w- why do they work well together? It's a bit of a loaded question, but, <laughs> um, you know, how does this kind of formal genre come together with this more kind of narrative genre, if, if we can distinguish in those ways?
1: Well, I'll start with thinking about animation generally. Um, I think part of the reason that we start to see more Animated horror for children, especially in recent years, is partly because we've just had many more animation studios in Hollywood than we've had at any other point in history. Right? It was the Disney show for a really, really long time with with not very much competition. But recently, we've we've had we've got Laker, we've got DreamWorks, Sony. There was blue sky until that got swallowed by Disney. And I think that has just allowed for a more more experimentation in terms of the aesthetic that, that we see in mainstream children's animation, but also in the kinds of genres of animation that we see. Um, I also think the rise in animated children's horror comes a little bit from the idea that animation is seen as safe and suitable mm-hmm. for children and therefore if you make a horror film for children in animation you're not necessarily going to be as scary you're not going to get as much bash- backlash or pushback as films like gremlins did back in the 80s um one of the things i try to push back against in the book especially in my chapter on coraline is that just because something is animated doesn't mean it can't also be really really scary Mm -hmm. because Coraline is a very unsettling film. And I think stop motion in particular, um, it's widely theorized as being uncanny because it can look kind of strange um, and not quite right. And of course, it's all about taking inanimate objects and making them look like they're alive. So I think stop motion is particularly suited to horror and children's horror in particular because the very aesthetic of it is disturbing. But also the fact that we take animation for granted and think that it's not that scary means that it can be quite subversive as well.
0: So you mentioned Coraline, which is you know a focus of one of your chapters as well as Paranorm and, and um, Monster House. Can you tell me why or how did you select your case studies? Um, what were the films that that resonated with you and, and what do you see going on in these films in particular? That's a broad question that asks you yeah. to summarize the second half of your book. But I, I'm just curious about, um, you know, when you're deciding what children's films are going to get that in-depth analysis, right? Um, both as a viewer and a scholar. Um, mm. what, what struck you about, about those films?
1: S- some of them I picked because i just really wanted to write about them um when i started writing about children's horror way back as an undergrad i just gravitated towards gremlins and i think it's because that was a film that i had watched i'd grown up with and there was something about it that i just thought i have to write about this um but it was also the fact that that was an important landmark as well in the industrial history of children's horror that that helped to justify uh, the choice of that case study, um, and there were other films like Coraline, that uh, and The Witches, which were just films that again I just I liked them a lot and they seemed. Um, but they also are the kinds of films that people often will cite when they're talking about the films that they've seen that scared them I mm-hmm. have students now who grew up this makes me feel really old but I have students now who, who have grown up watching Coraline and they're like oh my god that terrified me when I was a kid Um, and then some of the other case studies simply came out of crawling through IMDb, putting in keywords and seeing what came out and just watching a lot of films. Um, And initially when I was doing the PhD thesis, I was trying to group the films thematically. So monster house, I put with the whole because they were both about um, boys in haunted houses, essentially Um, the monster squad was also an interesting one um, that I wanted to write about. I hadn't heard of it before I started the PhD and I discovered it and I wanted to write about it partly because it just seemed like really bonkers. There's a lot of really strange stuff that happens in that film that you wouldn't see in any other children's film, like Dracula calling a girl, like a six year old girl, a bitch. Um, you can bleep that out if I'm not, <laughs> if you don't want to on the podcast,
0: but that's a direct good, quote but... from the film,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah um and just all kinds of other weird stuff that happens in that film so it was a whole it was a whole mix of things it was personal preference it was um and then just discovering interesting films that seemed like they hadn't really been written about before and I thought I have to write about this I have to write about the movie where Dracula cusses out a child
0: yeah I mean your book operates in this kind of uh lacuna between like children's scholars or children's media scholars tend to focus on fantasy, on um, the more realistic narratives, right? Um, and then horror scholars tend to focus on the quote unquote adult horror, right? So it leaves this kind of in-between area that hasn't been properly addressed. Um, and and I think your book represents an important intervention there. Um, you mentioned, uh, we've been talking about children's horror media, Your your book's about film, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts about um, how the genre has developed in television um, and in particular, maybe even streaming, right? Do we see um, as audiences become more fractured, as we see more kind of narrow casting or, or attempts to kind of capture niche audiences, um, is children's horror thriving uh, on television and on streaming in particular, or um, do you see this as primarily a, a filmic endeavor?
1: I absolutely think it's thriving on television and on streaming, and if anything, is kind of dying in the cinema. Um, the pandemic seems to have accelerated that a bit. But something I realized when I was finishing the book, and this is why I talk about it in the conclusion, is that the home and television are perhaps the ideal space for children engaging with horror. Children obviously do or did um, go and and see children's horror at the cinema, but children re-watch a lot of films and they do that at home. They see stuff on TV. They also see a whole lot of horror films they're not supposed to see on TV or on video or whatever and now on streaming. So if anything, the home really seems like the, the space where children are most likely to encounter horror and also it's potentially the best space for them to do that because you have a bit more control over that viewing experience right if something's too scary you can just switch it off or you can turn the volume down or or whatever um i still think that there there can be a space for children's horror in the cinema but i don't really i'm not really seeing that right now streaming seems to um and especially after the the pandemic streaming seems to be where all children's horror is going at the moment um the new henry Selleck film in fact is going straight to netflix um all of them the significant children's horror films that have come out in the last two or three years have been straight to netflix or vod like how the witches was was designed as a theatrical release but that was released to vod because of the the pandemic But if anything, that's just reaffirming the idea that the home and children's horror and television have always gone together. Um, I have written about children's horror anthology programs in particular, like Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark and that kind of thing. Um, And something I was interested in there was why those children's horror formats often ended not with a happy ending like children's horror movies do, but they often ended with like a twist where the monster was still alive and the child was still left in peril or something. And I thought, what is it about the anthology format on television that means it can be a bit more kind of quote unquote scary than a, than a movie? And so I wrote a chapter um, thinking through that idea And I think like I was talking about with animation, I think it's because the home is often assumed and television are often assumed to be just less frightening spaces for horror. Um, And that means that they are better equipped to take advantage of those misconceptions and do things that are maybe a bit more daring that films, children's films might not get away with.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to think about how the haunted house in particular seems to be a, a very common horror trope that's been taken up by children's horror. I mean, even I, I believe we're getting another ha- haunted mansion film, um, you know, from Disney. So uh, the investment persists.
1: Yeah, and uh, Helen Helen Wheatley, who wrote uh, the book Gothic Television, talks about that um, like, that link between the homes that we watch horror from and the haunted homes on television. And that's why therefore like horror and television go really well together. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, You also in the, we've been talking a lot about the the pleasures, the joys, the the delights that come from children's horror but I'm curious if we can be a bit cynical. Uh, What do you see as some of the limitations in the genre uh, you touch upon this in the conclusion in terms of representation. And I think this is an important area for us to cover as well.
1: Limitations. Yeah. Um, so one of the limitations I talk about in the conclusion is the representational limits of children's horror. All of the films I talk about in the book are about white male protagonists Um with few exceptions, Coraline is obviously an exception to that, which is about a girl. Um, you do have have other films we could call children's horror films that have girls um, as main characters, like Beetlejuice or or something. Although I would my argument is that because that film focuses more on the two adults, that it's not quite it doesn't quite fit. Um, within the category of children's horror as I define it so in the conclusion I wanted to point out and it and at the time I was writing the conclusion as well um it was like June 2020 right so this was very much on my mind um the and the documentary uh horror noir about um about black horror had had just been released as well so I was thinking and I kind of took a step back and I was like oh right I have this immense privilege and I hadn't noticed that all of the films I'm talking about are about white kids and often about white kids in the suburbs who live very comfortable middle-class lives when all of a sudden their neighborhoods are invaded by monsters um so I wanted to acknowledge that um there is a lot that children's horror is not doing in terms of representation. And um, I, thought, I thought about who these films are speaking to. Um, there are lots of female fans of children's horror, obviously, but um, and lots of Black fans of children's horror, but they're not really seeing themselves being represented on screen. Um, despite the fact that horror can provide lots of catharsis for those kind of very real life anxieties that can be attached to certain identities. This is something I've developed a bit more in a a recent piece that I've written for a collection on Wes Craven. Mm. Because Wes Craven made a film called The People Under the Stairs in 1991, which is an excellent horror film um, about a working class black child. And I was thinking about that film and about trying to think of other horror films with non-white child protagonists. And I realized that a lot of them were, that they do exist. You have the people under the stairs, you have like Attack the Block, um, Eve's Bayou, um, but they're all R-rated. So I was thinking, why, why are there, there are horror films about, like black or other non-white protagonists, but they are never what we think of as suitable for children. Um, and that seemed like a really interesting but strange discrepancy. Um, so I work through some of those those thoughts in relation to the people under the stairs um, in that forthcoming chapter. But it seems like we are starting to see some positive shifts. Um, Most of the children's horror films that have been released recently have been about much more diverse um, characters than we usually see in the genre. We've had um, the remake of The Witches that I mentioned earlier. Um, We've had The Vampires Versus The Bronx, um, which is kind of like, what if you took the monster squad, but you relocated it to present day? New York. um, What else? And the new Wendell and Wilde, the new Henry Selleck film, which is coming to Netflix, um, is also is co-produced by Jordan Peele and which also focuses um, on a black protagonist. Um, So we are seeing positive steps, although, again, I do think that the fact that they're all going straight to streaming is also a complicating factor there, because, like I said, the home can be maybe the most suitable space for children to engage with horror but also why aren't some of these films, which um, are making really big steps representationally, why aren't they going to the cinema? Why aren't they getting that platform um, of a theatrical release? And this is something that people have been talking about in relation to Pixar films like Turning Red um, and what else was there, like Soul. Um, There seems to be a wider issue at the moment with these amazing films which are representing people other than white people um, not going to the cinema. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how things develop in this kind of area, I think.
0: Yeah, I think this is a really important point. I remember uh, watching an interview with Alan Horn, who's in charge of feature production at Disney. uh, And he mentioned all these films that Disney had done in recent years, like McFarland USA um, and the Queen of Catwa. And, you know, he was excited that streaming would offer the opportunity for Disney to do more of these mid-range films. But what's also quite troubling is those mid-range films in particular feature a lot of diverse representation on camera and behind the camera. Um, and why is there this kind of segregated distribution going on where, you know, the the Marvel film still gets the theatrical release, but um, the smaller film that offers, say, a, a woman of color as the director and, you know, characters of color front and center on screen, you know, gets put unceremoniously on streaming amidst so much other content. Um, And I think that that's a really important issue for um, scholars to continue to engage and and critique. Um, Along those lines, um, based on what you're drawing our attention to here, I'm curious what you see as the future of children's horror media scholarship. Um, What projects are there to be done? What are some issues you would love to see scholars who read your book taking up in their
1: own work that's such a great question because i do feel like i really want the book to just be like the beginning of a conversation um because i there are still so many gaps that could be addressed so the like i said the book the book does focus primarily on film and that was partly because um there's so much television that I just didn't really want to have to deal with television. I'm working on another project about children's horror TV right now. And I'm like, oh, right. This is why I didn't write about TV to begin with, because there is so much of it. But there is so there is still um, so much to be said about children's horror in in other media, whether that's TV, maybe even video games, um, comic books, all sorts of things. Um, People might also disagree with the definition of children's horror that I lay out in the book. I I have a bit of a strict definition um, that applies a bunch of genre theory. Um, But so I don't really talk about a film like, let's say, Labyrinth, which lots of people grew up watching and have said really scared them. Um, Personally, I grew up loving Labyrinths, but I never really found it scary. So I guess personally, I was like, well, I don't really think of that as a children's horror film, so I'm not going to write about it. So people might disagree with the definition I have and and are free to pull that apart and write about other children's horror films that I've left out as a result of that. Um, I know of at least two PhD students currently who are writing more about Disney's relationship with horror. Um, Because like I said, you have films like Snow White that were important landmarks in children's horror, but there's so much more to be said about the use of horror throughout Disney's history, not just in their animated features, but also in their directed TV movies, for example, in the parks um, and that kind of thing. And that's before you even think about opening up to the world beyond The US and the English speaking world. Um, I focused on what's familiar to me, which is American and and British cinema, but um, I'm also trying to search out what children's horror exists in other parts of the world as well. And um, I think that presents lots of really exciting possibilities for future research.
0: Yeah, especially considering what its, its uses might be, right? Is it just entertainment? Is it didactic? Is it, um, you know, is it a form of social control, right? That comes up in your book a lot, too, is this kind of notion that horror, especially in fairy tales, was like a means of controlling the child. Um, you, you've gestured towards it here, but I'm just curious if you could talk a bit more about, um, you know, what you're currently working on. Um, It seems like this work is continuing, but do you have any projects that might take you in a new direction?
1: Yeah, so I just mentioned talking about international children's horror. Um, That's because I'm working on a piece on international children's horror TV. Um, I'm still just in the early stages of that and trying to narrow down case studies, because like I said, it turns out that there is a whole lot of children's horror television around the world but I'm also excited to get properly stuck into that. Um, I also, if I can plug um, a project that's coming to its end, I have just completed an edited collection on the film Watership Down. Oh, wonderful. Um, listeners won't be able to see this, but I have a poster from Watership Down directly behind me. Um, and that's an iconic British animated film that I didn't include in the book because it's British but also because I was like hmm I don't really know if I can call this a horror film and I also don't really know if I can call it a children's film but so after that project concluded I decided I was going to just get really really stuck into writing about Watership Down which um, has always fascinated me because of that ambiguity about who is this for, about the fact that it has this reputation as a legendary traumatizing children's film, um, especially in British culture, the Mm -hmm. fact that it's about rabbits and I really like rabbits. (laughs) So it just allowed me to explore all of these weird niche, like intersections um, of my interests. Um, So that's um, an edited collection, which is coming out with Bloomsbury next year in their key animated films series and it should be open access i think so if you don't want to spend hundred dollars or whatever on a hardcover you can get the ebook for free
0: excellent i'm sure our listeners will keep an eye out for that i want to thank you for your time today catherine it's been great talking to you the book is horror films for children fear and pleasure in american cinema available now at the bloomsbury website and online booksellers
1: I should say it's coming out in paperback oh, in congratulations. April, I believe. So again, if you don't want to spend a ridiculous amount of money um, or just rely on your library to buy one, you'll be able to get an affordable copy from April next year.
0: And that'll be perfect for course adoption as well. Um, so thank you again for your time today. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books and Film on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Take care.